This episode is sponsored by NewCalm, and as many of you know, I only bring sponsors onto this show whose products I truly swear by. Now, we are an overworked and underslept population, especially those of us that wear uniform for a living. And trying to reclaim some of the lost rest and recovery is imperative. Now, the application of this product is as simple as putting on headphones and a sleep mask. As you listen to music on each of the programs, there is neuroacoustic software beneath that is tapping into the actual frequencies of your brain, whether to upregulate your nervous system or downregulate. Now, for most of us that come off shift, we are A, exhausted, and B, do not want to bring what we've had to see and do back home to our loved ones. So one powerful application is using the program PowerNap a 20-minute session that will not only feel like you've had two hours of sleep, but also down-regulate from a hypervigilant state back into the role of mother or father, husband or wife. Now, there are so many other applications and benefits from this software, so I urge you to go and listen to episode 806 with CEO Jim Poole. Then download Nucalm, N-U-C-A-L-M, from your app store and sign up for the seven-day free trial. Not only will you have an understanding of the origin story and the four decades this science has spanned, but also see for yourself the incredible health impact of this life-changing software. And you can find even more information on Nucalm.com. This episode is sponsored by yet another great company that I use and endorse, and that is Bubs Naturals. Now, they are offering you guys a discount on your first purchase with them, and I will get to that in a moment, but I really want to tell you the history of Bubs. Bubs was a call sign of Glenn Doherty, one of the courageous Navy SEALs that died in Benghazi, and his best friend, Sean Lake, co-founded Bubs Naturals not only to bring wellness solutions to the community, but to take 10% of the profits and donate to charities in Glenn's name. So I first came across their collagen through Jeff Nichols and had no preconceived notions or biases, but I started to witness in myself, my nails grow faster, my hair get thicker and longer, my skin, I've got very dry skin and it usually cracks in the winter, that has not happened this year. My joints, the aching, the kind of inflammation has definitely subsided. And then what really blew me away was actually my gut health. I saw that improve. And when you think about the gut is 80% of your immune system, that is incredibly pertinent. They have the apple cider vinegar gummies. I also take those. And then the MCT oil in a powder form has allowed me to put creamer back in my coffee after swearing off dairy for years. But when I have this creamer, it's adding energy, it's adding mental focus, so yet it's another supplement. Now, as far as efficacy, they're the only collagen that is 100% NSF for sports certified and Whole30 approved. So as I mentioned, the discount code. They are offering you 20% off a one-time purchase by using the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear the full story behind Bub's Naturals and the courage of Glenn Doherty, listen to my interview with Glenn's best friend and Bub's co-founder, Sean Lake, on episode 558 of the Behind the Shield podcast. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show former Special Forces soldier and aviator Nick O'Kelly. So in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics, especially on his unique journey within the military, from his path into the army, 
entering Special Forces selection, deciding to transition into the aviation side, ultimately flying his Special Forces brothers, his own very powerful mental health story, the tools he's used for post-traumatic growth, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful and important conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment. Go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Nick O'Kelly. Enjoy. Well, Nick, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you to Kagan Gill for connecting us, another incredible human being that I got to share a plane with for several days as we circumnavigated the globe. And secondly, I want to say welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast today. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me, James. And yeah, Kagan's story is incredible. I think they need to make a movie about that. Um, I'll be the first one to watch that. But yeah, again, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm Pleased to be here for sure. Beautiful. So where on planet Earth are we finding you this afternoon? So I just relocated to Charlotte, North Carolina with my family. Um, it's a beautiful city. We So I actually just got out of the Army in May. So we're still kind of finding our home here and finding our uh, our place. But we love it so far. It's a, it's a growing city. Got an awesome demographic. So yeah. I got to MC the um, Operation Enduring Warrior Gala, and they're an amazing organization that take uh, uh, wounded warriors, whether it's in the military side or the first responder side, through Spartan races, skydiving, archery, um, just an amazing group of people. And their gala was actually in North Carolina, in Charlotte. So I got to see the city a little bit, and then even the airport is absolutely beautiful there. It is. They do such a good job of keeping it clean and like, just updated and everything seems new and fresh and yeah, no trash everywhere. So hopefully they can keep it that way. But yeah, it's been a great experience so far here. Brilliant. Well, I would love to start at the very beginning of your career and, and a timeline, should I say, because obviously you just transitioned out just a few short months ago. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay. Yeah. So born 1989 in Everett, Washington about 30 minutes north of Seattle um, and I lived in Everett until I was in fifth grade going into fifth grade um, looking back it's funny to think about it when when I was young like before fifth grade in Everett we lived in a quadplex in like basically the ghetto of Everett Washington like when I go back to visit now I can't believe we even lived there because when you're a kid you don't think about that stuff but um so we, in fifth grade, we moved to a town called Marysville, Washington, which is just north of Everett. And that's really where I call home and really where I grew up. Um, I went to public school until 10th grade, which is when I went to private school, private Christian school. 
Um, I am the second oldest of four. So I have an older sister, younger brother, and then my youngest sister um, actually has Down syndrome. So that's kind of created a unique um, perspective to see the world through as well. And then a unique um, upbringing, I guess, if you will. Um, we always had very, very high expectations of us as kids. So our parents were, I don't want to say overbearing, but they had very high standards. So it was straight A's or else, you know, something went wrong and um, you had to kind of answer for that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we had a great childhood overall. I just, there were def are definitely aspects of it looking back that you don't think of when you're in it um, until you look back and reflect on it when you're older. Well, we're obviously going to get into your mental health journey and, and a real aha moment for me early in this podcast was the impact of childhood trauma. So you have, you know, us, we put the uniform on, we take the oath, and then we progress through and maybe see and do some things that definitely compound it. But there are elements of our formative years that really are really discussed in a lot of people's kind of journeys to try and find healing. Um, some of these are very, very acute, you know, sexual abuse and things that actually happen way more frequently than I realized till I started hearing these stories. Others are a little bit more subtle, but still can definitely contribute, whether it's, you know, you're the middle child you found unloved or no matter how hard you worked. And I saw this with my dad on occasion, you know, you'd get five A's and a B and he'd be like, why'd you get a B? So just kind of talk to me again. You know, it's not about trauma comparison or you know thinking well that was it and i called into a ball because my parents wanted a's however not feeling good enough is a crippling emotion to a young boy or girl yeah and that's kind of interesting because like i said that's not one of the things that you like think of or reflect back on um but to go a little more into my childhood like i had a great core group of friends um i was fortunate to grow up from fifth grade to graduating high school in Marysville. So core group of friends from fifth grade on all the way through high school and then even obviously through college too. Um, so graduated college, I uh, went to, or sorry, graduated high school, went to a um, private college in Eastern Washington called Whitworth. It was a great experience, but I was there for the wrong reasons, 100%. Uh, I literally just went to college to, because it was the right thing to do and that's what you know, society expects you to do. So I went from being a 4.0, 4 basically, high school student to being, I think I got a 1.7 GPA my freshman year. <laughs> like I went, I went to class just to, just to survive, I guess. I didn't even, I wouldn't even say to, I wasn't there for the right reasons. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. Um, and so to uh, kind of compress that story, I, I lasted two years in college and then my dad basically said, Hey man, like I'm not going to pay for this if you're not going to even go to class and, you know, rightfully so. So dropped out of college after two years and then went back home and worked for my dad. Um, he owned a, uh, car magazine. So I worked for him just going around taking pictures of car dealerships of cars and things like that. And, um, I mean, I had a blast. I was partying and having a good time, but, I kind of came to the realization that I needed to do something with my life. And that's when, that's kind of when it brought me to the army. So um, while I was in college, I did ROTC. So I was 
planning on being an officer in the army <laughs> until uh, my motivation said otherwise by getting terrible grades. And then, so that was my first like exposure to the military though. And I love the like competitiveness. I loved the fact that if you're physically fit, um, that you can succeed pretty easily. You know, that's like a big different differentiator, especially going into the military. Um, physical fitness is obviously placed on a pinnacle and I was in good shape when I was in my, you know, 18, 19, 20 around that time. Uh, so, so yeah, I uh, went to the recruiter's office. I originally was going to join the Marine. Um, and then they kind of told me like, you didn't really have a hundred percent say of what your job was going to be. So I went down the road to the army recruiter and he told me I could be special forces, you know, and the Marines said I didn't have a guaranteed, you know, job of where I was going. So I was like, okay, I'll definitely, definitely take special forces over being a cook in the Marines or whatever I ended up being. So yeah, that's, that's what led me to the army. Um, and then also my older sister enlisted as well. So she was in the army as well. She was a medic. When when you were in college, when your GPA dropped by 50%, was there an element of partying in that too? Or was it just a lack of motivation to go to the classes? Oh, no, it was, it was 100% partying. Partying and then sleeping in till noon or 1 p.m. the next day. And then being like, whoops, I guess I missed class. And then it compounded to the point where it had been like, I don't even know, two, three weeks be- before I even went to one of the classes. So, by that point, I was like, well, I'm a lot guys. I'm just going to be so far behind. I might as well just not go. And, <laughs> yeah, it was just a snowball effect of that. Um, and ironically, the only grades that I got A's in, so the only reason I had a GPA was because of the ROCC classes, because those were, in my mind, non-negotiable because it was a military, you know. So that structure of the ROCC program, ironically, like, made me succeed in that aspect. <laughs> but, Yeah. Well, I know you spent time in Japan. I lived in Japan for 15 months. And one of the observations of the Japanese culture, which I love, and it was amazing how many similarities there were between Japanese and, and British culture with manners and, you know, um, not routines, the traditions and those kind of things. I'm, I'm missing the word now. But was they their culture viewed questioning things as very disrespectful so there was a lot of obedience and i mean that in a positive way not a derogatory way so what i saw is that was a lot of pent-up emotion and so when after work a lot of times they would drink they would fucking drink you know and it was like this kind of bow pull back and then let go you had a sounds like you had a kind of um stricter childhood too was there an element of that freedom for you yeah that's funny that you say that because um yeah for sure my mom (laughs) so this is a this is a funny story and she's gonna laugh when she hears this but um she was the mom that like i said before if i got a b it was what happened and i'm gonna go talk to your teacher and your teacher is going to send me a weekly email on your progress for the next semester until you get an A. So, so yeah, long story short, um, super, I was almost forced to get good grades in high school. It wasn't even, even though I was capable of it, it wasn't, I would say, as much my choice. You know, I didn't have the freedom to even fail. So when I got to college and had the freedom to fail, I definitely failed. <laughs> 
took full advantage of that. So you mentioned about being fit. What were you playing and doing as far as sports and exercise in the school age? Yeah, so I grew up playing baseball. Um, so baseball was like my go-to sport. And then I once I got into college, I really got into running. And it was just kind of my then, my my place to go. And I just, I got really into it and I got pretty good at it. Um, by the time I was, by the time I enlisted in the Army, I was running like 11 minute, two miles and just flying. So yeah, that was that was my passion, I guess, if you will, going into the army. Um, and but yeah, baseball was my was my go to sport growing up. Now, prior to this kind of come to Jesus moment that led you to the military, was there another career that you were dreaming of when you were younger? I mean, I had the aspirations of a professional baseball player, normal kid, but I wasn't even close to that. So, um, but other than that, honestly, I didn't. I I went to college to be an engineer, so that was like my declared major. But that was also along the lines of it sounds like a good career, and I didn't really have any desire to do that. It was more just I have to say something, so I'm gonna say that and declare that. And I was good at math, so naturally just led me to that. But yeah, it's amazing how many people on the show that became incredibly high performers in uniform said they wanted to be a pro basketball, football, baseball. And it makes me think maybe recruiters should go to those selection processes in college and just set up outside the door. So when they don't make it, they can just walk in and sign the paper and miss that kind of middle bit. That's so funny because um, the side so joined, when I joined, it was called the, it's called the 18 X-ray program. So that's like the special forces recruit program. Um, and when you go to basic training, at least for me, our whole basic training platoon was full of 18 x-rays. So guys wanted to be FF guys. And I kid you not, they were probably, I would say 50% of them were either like college athletes or college graduates or, you know, played, played like competitive sports and were good at sports. It's just, but yeah, what you're saying is like spot on. Like there's so many former athletes that go into the special operations world. Crazy. Well, another, I think, uh, misnomer or myth to the civilian population myself included early on is that a special operations soldier special forces soldier is this kind of uber athlete you know behemoth or behemoth excuse me um and then you actually speak to the men and women that were you know playing that roles and yes some of them are larger but usually the physicality was was less important than the mindset and that's what they said over and over and over again you were a baseball player you were a runner as you progress through selection, what was it that allowed you to continue when some of your peers rang the bell? I think I think one of the biggest things um, is being having great like cardio fitness is obviously a huge game changer because almost all of it is just how long you can go, you know, without quitting, and just how much can you take before you quit. So having that mentality of running and pushing myself as like a runner, if you want to call me that, was very, um, very beneficial for me. Like having that good cardio core stamina was huge. But uh, I will also say I, it was a like, this is extreme, but like a do or die type of mentality in my mind. Like I was not going to let myself fail and be subject to wherever the army wanted to send me. Like this was, this was it. And I was going to pass. Um, 
And then on that note, I think some people, I don't know if there's merit to this or not, but I think some people are just wired differently to not quit and just grunt things out. And we'll get into that later too, as my story kind of proves that. And then um, ironically, about a month ago, I actually got rhabdomyolysis doing CrossFit here in Charlotte. <laughs> and I think that, I mean, that kind of proves the point right there. Like, I don't know when to quit and I just push my body until it makes me stop, I guess. So I think, I think that just that characteristic, some people just have it. I had a really hard workout. I mean, I'm talking a few years ago now and we started peeing blood, what I thought. But I forgot that I'd made beet juice earlier in the day, and that's all it was. <laughs> so I came myself. <laughs> it wasn't rap, though. It was just that I'm a fucking idiot. That's all it was. <laughs> that's, that's so terrifying, though. <laughs> Anytime your pits is any different color, freak out. Exactly. Well, with, with the running, it's interesting. Baseball, you're relying on a team. And I always talk to people about this. You have team sports, which has value in one, in one area, but then you have individual sports. And I did uh, martial arts for a long time and I fought, you know, so I would fight for a team sometimes, but just me and the opponent are on the mat. But even then, when you've got someone trying to punch and kick you in the face, there's still an extrinsic motivator. When it comes to running, and my son is a cross-country and, and uh, track runner at the moment in his high school, that's a different kind of mindset because there's a little voice in your head telling you to stop, but there's not someone in front of you trying to score a goal or choke you out. So talk to me about how you develop that you know do or die don't quit mentality yeah that's a good good point um so actually when i was i went through like a chubby phase in high school so i was like i think i was 16 or 17 or whatever and i i got in like this chubby phase and that's when i was like all right i'm gonna i need to do something i'm gonna run and I, that's when i really like started getting into running but um i had this I don't even remember back then how I timed my runs. It was probably just an analog watch, but I just would constantly just try to beat my last day's time no matter what. Like that was my goal for every single one run was just to get better and better. And I think, I mean, that was enough for me, honestly, just to keep, keep pushing and keep going. It just, it just felt so good to just continually improve and get better and better. So which kind of specialty did you find yourself in once you, you know, made the, uh, the Green Berets? Oh, so I was at 18 Charlie, so engineer, demo, construction. Um, if you want to call it construction, it was more like, here's two two-by-fours. Let's see if we can nail them together and make something work out of it. <laughs> but no, it was a good time. I think um, thinking back, like I wouldn't have it any other way. I initially wanted to be at 18 Delta and be a medic. And um, I'm glad that didn't work out, honestly, because being an 18 Charlie was awesome. You kind of you kind of get to have your hands in a little bit of everything. You get to work with the like weapons guys, the 18 Bravos, and help them with range stuff. And then, yeah, it's just, it's a cool like versatile job on an ODA. So I loved it. Now, when people think about Green Berets, they immediately again think about Afghanistan, Iraq, you know, in more recent conflicts. I know you found yourself in a, in a different arena. So kind of talk to me about how the Green Berets are, are separated globally and then where you found yourself. Yeah, so I um, so once I graduated the qualification course uh, in 2012, I went to Okinawa, Japan. So that was my first duty station, um, actually my only duty station with group. Um and I was in first battalion out there, first group, which is um, forward deployed, obviously, in Japan. 
So our area of operations was Asia. So I got to, went to the Philippines a lot. Um, Thailand, Nepal, Australia, I got to kind of see that area of the world. Um, it was really cool, really great experience. We actually got to go to, when we were in Nepal, we had a two week, um, two week like white space, which is like nothing planned on the schedule. So we built in time to go do Everest Base Camp. And um, it was classified as high altitude training. So the Army paid for it. So it was a pretty awesome experience to be able to literally be on the clock and going to base camp in Mount Everest. Um, but I think one of the coolest things about being in special forces is like and traveling the world is just getting to see all the different cultures and third world countries and just how content people are with what little they have, you know? Um, it reminds me of this story when we, so when we were doing Everest or base camp, I don't want to call it Everest. It sounds, sounds way cooler than it is, but when we were doing base camp, we were, um, we were at one of the overnight stops or whatever. And this mom was giving this probably two year old girl uh, a bath and the water was just ice cold, like glacier cold water. And the girl was just screaming and screaming. And we're just like, we're just like, oh my gosh, is this happening? But that's like a normal thing for them, right? And like, if we did that to one of our kids here, it'd be, you know, people would be calling child services. It's just funny to see the, the different cultures and how, how people react to different things, I guess. I wonder what the Filipino or the, that culture thinks about the Westerners now jumping in an ice bath for two minutes. Like my two-year-old gets in that bath. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, no big deal. I know. And we like complain when it's lukewarm. Yeah. Well, the Philippines come up a lot when it's people, you know, talking about the Asian side. My wife is actually half Filipino herself. Um, and I know from, you know, from just watching the news for years and years and years that they're incredible people, but there is definitely an element of extremism, you know, extreme terrorism within that that country or that archipelago. What yeah, you don't have to be specific, but what were your observations of, of the the average Philippine, um, you know, families? And then talk to me about the the threats to those people and what you were seeing there. And I'm assuming being part of the solution for. Yeah. So um, fortunately, I was. Most of my time in the Philippines was just training with their military, like training their special operations forces. Um, but it's very interesting how westernized the Filipino culture is. Like a lot of them, they really do like admire America and our culture. Um, they're like the biggest NBA fans in the world. Like you would never think that, but you go over there and like they know more about the NBA than any anybody on my team did. And it's just wild to see that. Um, but yeah, there's definitely real threat in the Philippines, especially down south in like the southern island. Um, but uh, you should see like how how badass the Filipino special operations guys are. Like they they are just relentless, and even though they don't have the resources or the training that we are privileged to have, like they get after it and they have no fear. It's pretty it's pretty amazing um, the resolve that they have. I think I don't quote me on this, but I know they um, they had one mission or their one of their pipelines. So I think it's their Ranger pipeline. Um, before the students can even graduate the training, they have to go to combat and see real combat, like and get in a gunfight. That's like a requirement for them 
to even graduate their training pipeline, not even, not just to be operational. Like it's pretty mind blowing. If there's no way we would do that here, <laughs> like, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy what they put their, what they put their soldiers. Through. Yeah. Though, I mean, I guess you could argue that you could just take an American soldier to various communities in America and you're probably going to find yourself in a gunfight anyway. So <laughs> we could do it if we wanted to. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Touche. But no, I, I loved my time in Asia. It was, it was the coolest experience in the world. Like, being able to travel around there and experience all the different cultures. Well, you talked about the um, the sense of kind of gratitude and contentment in some of these cultures that comparably, if you look at a, you know, a bank balance, are very poor compared to us in the US. Talk to me about that contrast. What were you seeing? Because we have, I believe, you know, the most affluent you know, country on the planet. But when you look at a lot of these you know, these vi- films and videos, of whether it's National Geographic, whatever, whether it's in Africa or, or some parts of Asia, there's a lot of smiling, there's a lot of dancing and, you know, all that kind of thing. And even Okinawa is known to be very, very playful, the elderly people there. And then you look at the US and it's, I'm tarring with the same brush, but a lot of us just look fucking miserable. And yet we have it better off than 90 whatever percent of the world. So what was your perspective of that? Yeah, I mean, you nailed it. That's exactly right. It seems, it seems like the more that we indulge over here, the less content we are with what we have. And like, it's that keeping up with the Joneses type of attitude that everybody kind of has that it's always looking to the next milestone instead of looking at where you're at and saying, okay, I'm happy. And I don't know if that's a factor of maybe over there and or in other third world countries and things like that. People just are accepting that that's their life maybe i don't know if that's the reality um maybe they're just you know okay this is my life this is how my parents live this is how i'm going to live and i'm going to be happy with it we're here we're just constantly living the rat race and trying to find the next thing trying to find the next thing trying to kind of elevate ourselves and push ourselves into that next tax bracket you know and just make ourselves that much better where over there they're you know they're living their lives like they're living in the present instead of constantly striving for something else and that might be way off but that that's kind of my perspective on it yeah yeah i mean i haven't i haven't spent a lot of time in in very very poor areas of the world but i've traveled a lot and obviously there is a spectrum um and i i agree it seems like just the simpler lives and even if you just look at rural areas um you know of the states of the uk it's not like they're doing cartwheels through the fields but they're not worrying about their social media account or, you know, their latest disposable outfit they're going to wear that weekend. You know, it's a lot more growing the food and being in nature and being exposed to sunlight and, you know, that sense of community in a smaller town. So I just feel like we've kind of gone away from that. What about nutrition and movement? Okinawa is known, I think it's, is it the the blue zone? I think some of the the most, um, I forget the term now, sensitive centigenarian have i got that right but the most per capita people that live 100 or older in the whole world and when you look at the documentaries about it the you know the the way they move the playfulness their their diet is obviously a huge factor what have you seen not just japan kind of in asia as far as again the contrast between our processed food and drive-throughs and activity here and the simpler lives that you saw in some of those areas yeah that's um so they're very I would say um, health conscious, but that's just how they live. It's not like they're 
um, striving to buy the organic things. Like that's just how they live. That's just what they're used to. So it's where here, you know, most people are living off profit foods all the time. That's just not part of their culture there as much. I mean, they still have McDonald's and all that stuff. Don't get me wrong. But even their McDonald's there is cleaner than it is here. You go to McDonald's there and I'm sure you've heard that. Like, and I'm sure you've experienced that it's higher quality food, which is weird to think because it's, you know, the trashiest food you can eat for your body. Um, and then I don't know if you knew this, they, so in Okinawa, they work, they basically work until they die. Like there's, they don't retire there. I mean, maybe one season two did do, but part of their culture is they just keep working. And I don't know if that, I'm sure that attributes to them staying healthy longer and staying active longer. Um, and I'm sure it's just all works together. I shared a video of a, a Haitian man a few months ago now, and this guy could have been on the front cover of any muscle and fitness magazine, but he was a Haitian, I think he was a farmer, and he was basically saying, well, he was 83, I think. I could have retired a long time ago because I guess they do have that philosophy there, he said, but I didn't want to be a burden to my kids. And so this guy looked amazing, absolutely amazing, 83 years old. But this is the thing. He woke up with a purpose. He was outside. He was moving. I'm assuming, you know, being a small island that he still was eating fish and you know, a lot of the healthier foods. Um, and I feel this is this is the problem is that in my uh, profession, for example, people enter with a burning desire to serve. Sometimes there's a muddling and towards the end of their career, they're focusing on pensions and drop schemes and all these things. And then you come out the other end and you've served and you're you know, arguably broken. So what is that thing for you to get up and get excited about every day? And I think the military you know, deals with this too. If you lose that purpose, you know, if you're doing a job you hate, you probably don't want to do it to you 100. But if you can find something that still motivates you to get up, that has to be one of the keys to longevity. Yeah, I 100% agree, especially, um, I mean, I even remember thinking in my military career when I took like extended leave, like a 30 day leave or something towards the end of it, I'm just like, man, I need to, I need to do something like I need to go back and do something because I'm losing my mind right now. So I think there's a lot of value to that. And you hear a lot of um, retirees and people transitioning from the military, like you're so used to just go, go, go. And then when you retire, you lose that. I guess, identity and, and yeah, like you said, sense of purpose because you're so used to it. Your body's so um, indoctrinated to just showing up to work every day and getting the job done and doing things that when you stop doing things, I think it's, I think it's dangerous. And also when people retire too, they lose, you've spoken about this too, they lose their tribe, they lose their community and they become detached. Um, and I'm sure that attributes to it as well. That can't that can't be good for anybody. Now, we need you know obviously groups of all kinds of special operations and, and regular military in all our strategic locations because we never know when the next thing is going to kick off. Your center Asia, most of the activity is obviously in the Middle East at that point. What was that like for you and your team? Was there a, you know a sense of, of FOMO to use a, a young person's term? Yes, definitely, and that was like. That was very, um, it's, it still kind of bugs me a little bit, to be honest. Um, cause if you talk to any SF guy, they'll, and they hear like, oh yeah, you were in first battalion. <laughs> they'll just think you were in the, the party group and you didn't, you didn't really contribute, you know, which 
which I mean, to be fair, I didn't go to Afghanistan and Iraq as a Green Beret. Like that came later when I went to flight school. So, I mean, I guess there's merit to that. I never, I never was the guy that like, you know, got blown up or saw friends get blown up, which is a blessing, obviously. But there's also still that like, man, yeah, I, ne- I did not see combat as Green Beret. So there is that FOMO aspect of that. Um, that side of it definitely exists. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not ashamed to admit it. I, I wish I would have gotten some, but probably was a blessing. <laughs> but it exists in the fire service too. I mean, we have what we call the war years in New York, for example, the, the seventies, eighties, where they were, you know, responding to a huge amount of fire. No matter what people try and tell other people on Instagram, the modern day fire service does not run on a huge amount of fires. And so the chance of us actually making entry on a fire and finding a person and pulling them out alive is extremely slim. But every single one of us takes that same risk when we respond to each and every fire and we take it seriously. But, you know, you can't, only one person or one team can be the one that killed bin Laden. You know, only one group of firefighters can be the ones that responded to Grenfell in London. But everyone else is still part of the, of the overall machine. So it's a weird thing. And I think it's really the ego, isn't it? I mean, of course, you want to be part of the solution, but it's it's really your ego that struggles that you weren't the guy that pulled that person out. Yeah, there's a lot of ego that goes into all of this. <laughs> Being in special operations, I think you're just com- constantly surrounded by testosterone and egos. And, you know, I mean, you want to be the best. I think it's just ingrained in your head that you want to, you want to be the coolest guy in the room, you know, so... There's definitely ego to, to every aspect of it for sure. Um, but as firefighters, you guys, um, I think my, so my cousin's a firefighter and he was telling me some of his stories. And I'm just like, man, like your guys' normal day on the job is somebody else's probably worst day of their life. Almost, almost every day. You think about it from that, that like perspective, pretty wild to think about that. Yeah. Well, I think it's a lot of the trauma that we accumulate usually isn't in fire. I've got some some fire-related trauma that I wrote about in the book that was pretty fucking horrific. And almost, there's a there's a element to that story that was crazy from almost like a spiritual side as well. But it's the you know the gang violence, the the traffic accidents, you know the the domestic violence, that kind of thing that that racks up, and that's not so heroic, you know, to film. But these are the things, you know, you, some of us were at the acute events, but a lot of us, it's, as you said, that day in, day out kind of death by a thousand cuts versus, you know, one one decapitation slice. Right. And you're literally seeing the worst of society, you know, like be exposed where like to a normal person, you don't even know that's happening, you know, but you guys are there on the scene. So, yeah, I'm sure that that's got to be difficult to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, it, it's, it can become a strength if it's addressed. And this is, you know, obviously what we're going to talk about today is so many people have come on here with so many different backgrounds from Kagan, you know, being a, a, an incredible pilot to British SAS and all the other people. You know, we're, we're trying to reframe this idea that talking about mental health is weakness, you know, and we know it's not now, but we need enough of these voices to kind of dispel this myth. So, you spend four years in Asia. What makes you decide to reevaluate your role within the military? Yeah, so my son um, was born in 2014. So I was, uh, that was after three years on the team. 
And my wife was also active duty. So she was an officer in the army and, um, I was gone so much in, in group. I loved it, but it wasn't conducive to being a father in my opinion. Um, I know a lot of guys make it and do well and succeed as a parent or a dad as a FF guy. But, um, I kind of saw the writing on the wall that I was going to be, I was going to have to prioritize the army over my family if I wanted to excel in that role. So, um, I went back to the drawing board and actually before I even enlisted in the army, I tried to drop a warrant officer packet to go to flight school. Um, but the process was taking forever. So that's when I, uh, reevaluated and decided to go an 18 x-ray contract and enlist. So that was always kind of in the back of my head. So I wanted to go to flight school. I heard aviation was, you know, really a really chill like atmosphere and a really good, um, community. So, so that's what I did. I dropped my flight packet, um, and then got into flight school and went to Fort Rucker in 2015 and started flight school. So when you say flight school, which kind of airframes do you end up working with? Yeah, sorry. So, um, in the army it's helicopters. So it was a rotary wing aircraft. Um, they do have a little fixed wing army, but that's like, you have to be really lucky to get one of those spots. Um, the selection process is interesting in army aviation. It's basically like whatever the army has available for aircraft, that's what your class gets to select from. So you could be an all-star and not even get um, your top choice because the army didn't have that available when you go to your selection to pick that. So. So you went through a very physical selection for SF. How did that contrast when it came to the aviation side? <laughs> yeah, it was night and day. Um, it was it was actually frustrating to be honest because you go. I went from being this established staff sergeant um, in special forces, like finally kind of found myself on the team and felt like I had a rhythm and you know had pretty good control and pretty good um, continuity with my team and with what I was doing. And then you get, I went to Fort Rucker and I thought I was going to be this badass Green Beret, you know, coming there and everybody was going to like bow down to me and stuff. And, and I get there and I get this um, W, actually you don't even get a warrant officer one rank when you first get there. You get this like walks candidate rank with just a WOTF on your chest. Um, so everybody on Fort Rucker knows that you're at the bottom of the totem pole because everybody there is an aviator and a warrant officer. So I basically went from being a cool E6 to being a basically a private on Fort Rucker. <laughs> so it was, a, it, was um, it was an interesting transition for sure. And then um, the first course that you do before you even go to flight school, you have to go to a warrant officer candidate school become a warrant officer and that's just uh, i think it was four five weeks and it's it was a joke like it, <laughs> the 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 cadre there are like cw3s who some of them were like cooks and they yell at you and act like you know they're super tough and you're just you know in the back of your mind you're just like okay dude like let's just get this over with so but it was frustrating because yeah, you go from being a badass to being treated like shit again. 
Yeah, I moved fire departments four times. And, uh, you know, the first one, obviously, I was completely green. The second one, I'd only been the one before 10 months. And then I went, so still completely green. But then I come out east, and now I've got you know, not a huge amount of time, but I've got like five years in, in two very, very busy departments, east coast and west coast. And then go to the next one, and that's when I start seeing the shout in the chest beating, and then you see people actually perform on the fire ground, and you're like, you're not as good as you think you are, are you? You know. And then fast forward another five years, I go to my last one. I've got ten years on the job, and again, you know, people peacocking around. Some of them are the humble ones, as you know, usually the good ones. The peacocks, usually the ones that are dog shit. And you know, by by the fourth time, the calluses on your tongue start building up from biting it so much. <laughs> but you're the new guy, and you play the game, and you you know keep yourself to yourself. But you can see plain as day who's walking the walk. And who's just fucking full of shit? Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's funny too because you, um, we had this one cadre who was like a former aviator, former pilot, um, and he thought it was exactly what you said. He was peacocking everywhere. I thought he was like hot shit. And then once you finally like get further in the pipeline and realize, like, you start hearing about his reputation and like you know, how he got in trouble and that's why the cadre there <laughs> or like he couldn't, you know, with a terrible pilot or I don't remember what it was exactly, but yeah, exactly. Like he, he's just, you know, thinks he's super tough because he's in charge of all these candidates and you know, the reality is he washed out of somewhere. That's the only reason he has that job. Yeah. Uh, we have him in the fire service too. Um, well, my memory serves me right. Cause I know we talked a few weeks ago now, you found yourself flying initially in the regular army. So talk to me about that experience. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So after flight school, uh, I went to, I graduated and went to uh, Savannah, Georgia and went to third cab. So third combat aviation brigade. And that was my first, um, obviously first assignment of flight school. So I was a brand new W1 of like, I don't even remember a hundred hours out of flight school or whatever. Um, and it was interesting because it was almost the same experience that I had at Fort Rucker when I showed up as a brand new candidate, like your bottom of the man in the totem pole. Um, and even though you're a warrant officer, you still get treated like a private ironically. So, um, all the enlisted guys in aviation are maintainers. So they're in charge of doing maintenance on the aircraft and keeping the aircraft viable. So, it's an interesting dynamic because they don't have a lot of time to do like all the details that um, a normal unit has private to do typically. So that fell on the warrant officers, specifically the brand new warrant officers. So I remember one day in Savannah, it was like, I don't even remember. It gets super hot in the summer. It was like a hundred degrees and heat index was probably 110, 115. And um, fire extinguishers exploded in these conics outside and it was me and my buddy's job to go out there and clean out these connexes that were just full of foam. And <laughs> we had, had pressure washers out there and we were just sweating our ass off for, I don't even remember how long it took us. But yeah, was, we were both just like, what are we doing? Like, what, what did we sign up for? <laughs> we thought we were going to be cool pilots. And now we're here cleaning out connexes and doing stuff that, you know, we never imagined doing. As a, as a pilot, you know, so it's kind of funny to, to think back on that. 
Well, I know, I don't know if this is the same phone, but our AFFF forum that we have, um, which we use for class B fires, now they, they realize that they have forever chemicals in. So they're carcinogenic. So that's always fun when you think back of all the times you were covered from head to toe. And then you're like, Oh, okay. I was just smothering myself in cancer, basically. Yeah, shocker. That and all the asbestos in every army building that exists. <laughs> yeah, no, there's, I'm sure. there's many a I'm fire sure station helps. with mold from top to toe as well. Yep. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's the classic army right there. Anybody in the army will tell you that. <laughs> every building has asbestos. Yeah, my friend uh, Will Bundy I went to school with in England, he became... Um, a he's a parachute instructor and um he does the uh god what they call it oh my god i'm blanking you would be the perfect person to ask what's the name of the training you do seer the seer training um so he did both of those but uh he told some you know stories where like barracks didn't even have hot water not that you would need it you're you know but this is supposed to be where the luxuries are but they weren't, you know, and, and broken windows and all this stuff. So the British people think that our military are being taken care of. And there's, you know, a lot of areas, a lot of bases that, you know, most most British people wouldn't even want to stay the night in. So it was kind of interesting hearing his perspective of the British Army, too. Yeah, that's funny. And yeah, same with like the Baritone Army. It's the same exact thing. They're just all trash and maybe not all. There's new ones that are nice, but yeah, you're supposed to be performing at like the top of your game and you're expected to do all these you know, intense physical things, and then, yeah, your environment's just crap, but whatever. You get through it. Part of the experience. Well, where I hear, you know, they do get the best tools, the best training, etc., is the Special Operations Special Forces community. So, walk me through your flying and regular army at the moment. What was that journey like back to the Special uh, Special Forces community as an aviator? Yeah, so I got really fortunate, um, and my the brigade, so third cab, was deploying a couple months after I got there initially. Uh, so I got to deploy. Um, I don't even remember when it was. I think October 2017, and um, it was a great experience because I got to build a ton of flight hours. So to try out for the 160th, which is where I ended up. Uh, they required you to have 500 flight hours and be a pilot in command, which usually coincide with around three to 500 hours when you actually make pilot in command. Um, so I was fortunate because I got all those hours on that deployment, which put me in a great position to drop my packet for the 160th while I was still deployed. And basically, once I got back from Afghanistan, hit the ground running, and I think I had a month off until I went to assessment, which um, which worked out great because I was in deployment shape, which is, you know, nine months of just hitting the gym twice a day or whatever, as much as you can and eating pretty well. So, well, eating well for deployment defect food, but, you know, <laughs> prioritizing that. So, um, but my regular army experience was pretty awful. Um, I was at the point where I was either going to make make it into 160th or I was going to get out of the army. Like I was just, I was fed up and I was done getting treated um, like a child, I guess you could say. I was done being micromanaged and, um, and frankly, the mission that we were doing in the regular army as, as pilots was not what I signed up to be a pilot or to do as a pilot. Like it was just going from airfield to airfield, dropping off supplies. And, you know, we did a couple like, combat missions but even those weren't 
they weren't what I envisioned and they weren't, um, it wasn't as gratifying as I thought it'd be. So I, I wanted to get back in the action and then also the community of special operations. You can't beat it. So I knew that I knew the grass was greener and I needed to get back, get back on that side of the fence. Well, this was hard. I think we talked about this before when, for example, I was in Anaheim, California, that was the bar was set so high and i've talked about this over and over again and that forged such tight brotherhood and sisterhood because if you made it through the crucible that was there one year probation you know that's a pretty amazing feat 25 percent of each class would be washed out by the time we got that year so then when you go to somewhere and i'll use my last place as the kind of extreme example that is so far from that i found it mentally it was it was bad for my mental health because the whole time you're like I know where we should be. And not only are you so far from it, there's no desire to even fucking start heading down that road to get back there. And this last one protects the biggest theme park in the world. So God forbid something happens one day. My thing was like, it's going to be absolutely horrendous. It's not going to be, oh, three people. It's going to be 300 people, 1,000 people. So it really was, I mean debilitating to me trying to constantly swim upstream and be part of the solution and don't get me wrong there were other people in the department that were trying to but there were so many they'd already beaten down that just had given up and there's a lot of people that should never have been wearing the uniform in the first place so i understand that you talked about the the camaraderie and the tightness in sf mentally what was your time on on the regular side did it have any detriment to you yeah so that's um yeah, I'll start getting into it right now. That's actually when um, everything started going downhill. So it was it was after I left SF um, and went to flight school at Fort Rucker. Uh, so it wasn't right away. So I went in 2015 and everything was great. Um, and then my daughter was born in May 2016. And then a few months after that, uh, I just, I don't know what happened. It's like a flip just or a switch just flipped in my brain and I just started having these super intense, like depressive suicidal thoughts. And I honestly, like to this day, cannot look back and tell you like what happened, whether there was an incident that happened or what. Um, I know like reflecting back on it now that I'm sure, well, I know for a fact that leaving SF had a big factor in it because like you said, I was, or like I said, I was at the top of my game. I was surrounded by literally brothers on my team. Um, we had a really tight group and we were just all type A um, go-getters. And then I leave that and for what I think is going to be a great career or a great um, alternative, I guess. And I'm kind of punched in the face with, oh crap, like what did I do? Like, am I, you know, am I going to be satisfied in this life, like in this career. And then um, pair that with the fact that my daughter was a, she was a rough baby. Um, I love her to death, but she was a rough baby. She was very, um, very cranky and separation anxiety to the math. Uh, and then my wife was working full time too in a job that she disliked. So I think it was just, it was just a bunch of different factors that compiled and just finally my brain said like, fuck you, I'm done. <laughs> you, you need to figure something else out. Like, and I'm going to help you do that. 
Well, so. you, just to jump in, when you were around this time, I mean, I get the whole grieving the tribe that you had, and that's a big, big part of your story, a big part of my story. Were were there elements of sleep deprivation? Were you finding yourself flying at night, or was that not a factor at that point? No, so I wouldn't say that was a factor, but I would say my daughter being up at night was probably a factor. Um, and the ironic thing is, I didn't even so when all this when this all happened, I didn't think of it as like um, I left SF and this is why I'm feeling this way. There was none of that in the moment or in the time. This is just me reflecting back on it. And now that I, you know, have clearer eyes, I can look at it and say, okay, that's, that definitely attributed to it. It wasn't like, it wasn't like in the moment I was like, oh yeah, this, you know, this sucks. This, this is why this is happening. I had no idea what was happening and I was just trying to get out of it desperately. So, um, yeah, but de- I think sleep deprivation definitely played a part in it because my daughter was a a baby and you know crying all the time and we're up in the middle of the night and then waking up at 4 a.m for flight school you know to go catch the bus so yeah that, that definitely played a role in it for sure so you get selected for the sf side talk to me about the the bar that was set flying in that um organization and then did that transition back into that group and the high level of demand that was required of you did that have a a healing effect for the moment so the biggest it did for sure once i got back into like special operations um so um i'll backtrack a little bit so my like just to kind of set the stage so this depression i'll just summarize it real quick and we can dive deep in deeper later if we want to this depression lasted um throughout the deployment in afghanistan and then it almost subsided and transformed into this like intense anxiety. I didn't know it was anxiety at the time, but it was these, I would get these like crazy dizzy spells and my body was just off kilter. And like, I'd be walking and it felt like the world was tilted at 45 degrees. And I just like had to do everything in my power just to walk straight. It was just bizarre. Um, So long story short, when I was, when I got to the 160th, that's what was going on. It wasn't really the suicidal thoughts, the depression, but it was this like intense anxiety. And I was just constantly on edge and constantly um, almost like scared that I would fall over and more like nervous that somebody would be like, what the hell's wrong with this guy? <laughs> so it, was, it was the expectations of just trying to maintain, you know, that, that posture of being, I was still a new guy, but the community there was so much better, so much more mature. Everybody was, everybody was there for the right reasons and everybody wanted to be there. Um, from the command down, like it was just a very professional organization. And it's also a unique um, part of special operations because most of the people there have been in the army, I would say eight to 10 years before they even go to that organization. So it's all the pilots are a lot more mature individuals and most of them have families and kids. So it's not, it's not as much as like a young guy's game as special forces or like Ranger Battalion or the SEALs are. So you deployed before, obviously you see, you know, a much higher up tempo when you're actually flying, you know, the SF community. A question I always ask people and the backstory is simply, 
through the media, especially in the US, we get a very polarized perspective of view of, of war, depending on which channel you choose, either kill them all, let God sort them out, or they're all baby killers. And then you have the middle where the actual men and women, arguably sometimes children, are sent overseas with our flag on their shoulder and they witness the things they actually witness. So you have a slightly different perspective because obviously you're in an aircraft, but the first part is a two-part question. The first part, was there a moment when you realized, regardless of politics that sent you to where you were, that there were some horrific people that needed to be taken care of? Yeah, so I do have a unique perspective as like as an aviator because I wasn't the guy on the ground that was actually going in the house and, you know, like capture killing, doing whatever, whatever the mission was. Um, so from my perspective, uh, I didn't see that firsthand. Um, so I'm, I'm not going to like bullshit you and pretend, you know, I, I have like some crazy insight into it. Um, so really what I would, what I would receive was just from like Intel recording or things like that of what was going on. So it was more like a outside looking in type of thing from, from a pilot's perspective as you know, it'd be a lot different if I was on the ground, actually, actually getting after it. I know that doesn't answer your question that well, but <laughs> no, but it does. I mean, because that's the thing. Even yeah. um, uh, I had uh, Dave Grossman on a couple of times, and he talks about you know the proximity of the kill has a, a different impact, and obviously a bayonet kill is very different than a drone kill, for example, even if they're both instigated by you know a soldier. So conversely, maybe you have more insight on this side. Another area that is totally underreported when it comes to war is the kindness and compassion amidst this chaos on a battlefield because we tend or the media tends to tar an entire nation with the same brush so we're at war with iraq or afghanistan and they don't really underline that there's amazing human beings that are being terrorized by terrorists in their own country so what about that you're you're overseas you're in the middle east were there any kind of moments of kindness and compassion that you remember not um firsthand because we didn't so I didn't interact with the like local populace too much other than like the people who would work on the base or whatever, but they were, I mean, they were always great. They always were super friendly, but um, I, I know just from my experience of being over there that it is the minority typically that's, you know, doing the horrific things and the majority of the population just wants to be left alone. Like they just want to be left to their daily, daily routine and live in peace and, the really sad part is just how how like beautiful that part of the world is. Like you, you especially flying around over there in Afghanistan, like that could be a tourist location. You know, there could be there could be a, a top ten location to go visit if you know they could just figure figure their shit out and figure figure out all the politics and you know, figure out a way to clean it up. But um, firsthand, no, I don't have much experience with like actually like interacting with the local populace as much as other people would. I went on a cruise about a year ago with my wife, and we went to Labadee, Haiti. And uh, it was kind of ironic because the, there was a comedian on the ship, and he goes, oh, did you go to fake Haiti today? Because it was basically like Jurassic Park for tourists. There was literally this tall electrified fence to keep the Haitian people out of this corner of their own island where we as tourists were going. What is so sad is just like you said, Haiti, and obviously the Dominican Republic is attached to it, is one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen on, on earth. And so if there was a way of navigating 
the corruption over there, you know, and addressing, you know, the violence that's come out of desperation, they would be a, an affluent island because people would flock there. I mean, the tourism would be incredible. So just like you said, it's so sad, you know, whether it's Mexico with the the ripple effect of our, you know, drug prohibition and therefore this massive consumer in the U.S. is driving crime at the other side of the border. So many of these countries, if they were just able to navigate to a a healthy industry, we'd all, you know, the rising tide lifts all ships. All of us would, would benefit rather than the poor people who hate you right now. It's, you know, po- pockets of it are literally war zones. And, you know, there's all these people that would kill to be tourists in Haiti and experience their beautiful island. But right now, you know, if you went there, <laughs> the chances of getting your head cut off are pretty, pretty high. So it's such an irony that the tyranny of the few can make so much damage in, you know, a city or a country or, you know, the ripple effect over an entire planet. Yeah, it's wild. And I mean, so far we haven't found a solution for it. I don't really, I don't really know if there is one, you know, other than just like, taking over, which obviously we're not going to do. So, yeah, it's, it is interesting to see that though. I mean, there's probably, I don't know, there's countless examples of places like that, you know, it blows my mind. So you talked about feeling like you were walking on a 45 degree angle. You're flying, you know, a, a helicopter that needs a, a, a massive uh, degree of, of skill and, and accuracy how did you navigate one when you were battling the other? Yeah, that's a very good question. So this is such a weird and bizarre phenomenon, but I never experienced that in the aircraft. I don't. I have no explanation why, but um, for some reason, I don't know if it was just adrenaline took over or what, but when I was sitting down in that cockpit, I never had that happen. And that was um, that was one of the biggest reasons that I was so hesitant to actually like speak up about what was going on. And it took me so long because I could still do my job and I was still, I was still flying well. Um, so yeah, ironically that never happened in the cockpit. It was only when it was just, it was weird. It was random. I don't even know what triggered it initially. Um, later on, I kind of started identifying it, but initially it would just, it would just happen. Like one day it would be, all day I would just feel off kilter and then the next day I'd feel fine. And then I would have like a instant blackout type moment where my, just a head over heels feeling and I'd have to like catch myself. It was weird. There was no pinpointing what was going on. I don't even know how to explain it better than that. And that's what the doctor struggled with too. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this is the problem, isn't it? With anxiety, the, the body keeps the score. The nucleus of a lot of these are psychological, but they're manifesting physically so they're testing the physical side going well everything looks good well yeah because the nervous system is telling it to do this thing but there's no disease process actually evident yeah exactly it was just straight fight or flight is like the best way to explain it you know that feeling when like you're about to get in a fight or something and you just your body just you know the hair starts picking up on your arm it was just like that but in normal situation (laughs) Like, what the hell is going on? Why is this, you know, why am I like freaking out right now for no reason? Well, I want to get to your journey and then obviously the transition. Before we do, though, you're flying now, you know, special forces level. What are some, I mean, I don't don't expect specifics, but what are some career kind of stories from that part of your, uh, your career? 
Um, so I don't have too many like cool badass stories, but I will say uh, flying in that unit is like is probably the coolest experience that I don't want to go that far, but that someone in the military in military aviation can have. Let's say that. <laughs> because the training and the technicality of flying is just on another level. Um, it's the capabilities are amazing. And the things that you can do in a helicopter just are mind blowing. Once you get to that level, um, even just landing in the dust, for example, landing with no visual references or anything, and just literally flying off a little computer screen from, you know, 40, 40 feet down and landing an aircraft is just incredible things that you can do. And, um, yeah, just the experience is awesome. I don't, I don't want to go into too much detail about what they actually do, but um, the technicality from the regular army going to special operations, it's like flying, it's like driving a like Toyota Corolla and then going into Ferrari, you know, and maxing that thing out to the limit and just driving as hard as you can. Like, I think that's probably the best way to explain it. It's it go you go from driving the speed limit to driving on the Autobahn and, you know, just seeing what you got. <laughs> I think that's a good way to like sum it up, sum up the flying experience in 160th. So talk to me about what made you finally decide to transition out and then kind of parallel that you've got these, these, you know, unknown bouts of anxiety at the moment, you know, how do those two kind of take us through to today? Okay. So, um, I'm going to have to go back quite a bit to like deep dive into this. So we'll go back to flight school and I'm just going to kind of go through my story and just interrupt me if I get long winded or start babbling. But, um, so flight school, 2016 daughter's born. I, I spoke about this. So I, I go into this deep depression belt. Um, and on the outside, I'm still, I'm still doing really well. I'm still performing really well in flight school. But it's literally nonstop, 24 hours a day, well, except for when I'm sleeping, thoughts of just these recurring thoughts of, you know, suicidal thoughts, just uncontrolled, didn't want them to be there, but they were there. Um, and I put up with that for a while. And then I can't remember the exact timeline, but I got to the point where I was like, man, like, I am terrified of what's going on in my brain. And I am, I don't know how to, like, stop it. And I don't know how to get out. So I brought myself, I drove myself to the chaplain on Fort Rucker. And this was like, this was a huge leap of faith because you can get kicked out of flight school in a heartbeat if you have something like this going on. Like they don't, especially if you have to go on medication, like that's really the kicker is if you go to medication then you'll be grounded from flying. So this was like, this is how desperate I was. Like I had held it in for so long and I had no other choice. I was, in my mind, I was like, I, I need to do this or something horrific is going to happen. So went to the chaplain, um, told him what was going on, and he did the right thing. He drove me to behavioral health, which, again, is like the scariest place in the world for someone in the Army to be because you don't even want to be in a parking lot of behavioral health unless you're like in processing or out processing that, that duty station just because of the, the perception of what's going on. So I go in and I do this uh, 
I kid you not, it was like a 15 minute written survey. Um, like questions were like, you having suicidal thoughts? Yes. Do you have plans to kill yourself? No, you know, and no, do you want to do it? No, all this, all those were no's. And then I went back and talked to somebody for, I think it was five minutes, not even kidding. And she, all she did was ask me those questions again that I already filled out. And then at the end, she was like, okay, well, um, since you don't have any plans to do it, you don't want to do it, and you don't have any intention to do it, um, I think you're good to keep training and stay in flight school. And, and that was it. And I was like, are you, are you freaking kidding me? Like, I just took a huge risk and came to behavioral health like to tell you that I'm having these suicidal thoughts and I'm scared that I'm going to like do something and you're just going to say I'm fine and let me keep going. So, but yeah, that, that was it. And I was like, okay, well not going back there because that wasn't helpful. So then the next, geez, I don't even know, two, two years, I'm just internalizing all of it and just trying to desperately find a way to get out of these, these thought patterns and just trying to heal myself on my own. Um, tried journaling, self-help books, meditation, um, tried praying, tried listening to like worship music, tried going to religion. Um, and I grew up Christian, so that was like ingrained in me. Um, and it just, it sucked because it, it just made me like pissed off at, every like mental health expert out there that tells you to do all those things because it wasn't working and it was just getting, it was, it was just a constant rat race of just trying to, trying to get out of the storm that I was in. Um, but it didn't seem possible. So my way of like coping with it was all those things I just mentioned. And then just constantly trying to like do something, get myself to the next level of my career and that was kind of, I think looking back now, I think that's what like at the end of the day, like saved me from doing something detrimental and from getting, um, making that terrible decision was I constantly like, so I wanted to obviously graduate flight school. Um, and the funny thing about this is too, as I graduated flight school as the distinguished honor grad. So like there's 80 other officers and I end up being the top guy in flying and academics and like i'm going through all this shit like it's and that's a perfect example you hear all the stories of the the perfect soldier the perfect you know the guy that has the perfect life taking his life and you're just like how the hell did that happen nobody sees it coming and it's because you when you're a high performer like you're so good at i don't know just going continuing to perform and harnessing things in and just holding it in. So I don't know if that's the reason, but that that's what it was for me. And I just had, I constantly had a goal um, that, and that's what I think kept me going. So it was graduate flight school. Then it was, all right, when I get to my unit, everything's going to be better. Um, Cause you know, now I'm not flight school and then I get there and nothing's better. And then it's like, okay, I'm going to Afghanistan. This will be fun. I'll actually get to do my job. And then I get there and it doesn't get better. And then it's, all right, I'm going to go to 160th, you know, so it was just constantly like peaking the next thing and trying to heal through that, but it wasn't effective at all. It was just, it was just kicking the can down the road, which I mean, thank God for that because I'm here now. But, um, I think the, 
end result would have been a lot different if I got help earlier. But then at the same time, I wouldn't have this experience to share and this story to like try to help others with, you know? Um, Just to jump in for so, a sec, the, yeah, um, cause I want to make sure I don't miss this point. Um, you were doing meditation, you were leaning into, you know, religion, all these things. Um, what I've talked about the analogy is when we have the healthy mind and you and you go to a tall building right now, you stand on the roof and you get close, there's an invisible hand pushing you back going, what the, <laughs> what are you doing? Get back from the edge of the, the building. And it sounds like from, I've heard from so many people that have been suicidal, especially the ones that actually have made the plan have stood there, you know, holding the gun or some of them even, you know, completed the attempt and they just survived is that hand is almost like it's behind them now. You're a burden to your family. You know, the world would be better off without you. And, you know, it's kind of shoving them the other way. One of the things that seems to be a common denominator to getting to that point is, for example, alcohol. When you look back, do you think that it was the meditation, the faith, the focusing and throwing yourself into all the skills that made you the best pilot that kept that just as an intrusive thought and not actually the completion of the thought? Um, I actually, that's a good question. I actually haven't thought about that. Um, I think so. And I think, I think the fact that in the back of my mind, it was just always like, I never, I never gave into the thoughts and I never wanted them there. Like it was more frustrating and terrifying at the same time, but all along it was like I never I never accepted them as like all right like this is me talking it was always just like this is going to sound crazy but there was a uh, excuse me there was a period where <laughs> this is going to sound crazy but, uh, <laughs> that I literally thought like demons were possessing me because I would I was like and and like it's going to be interesting hearing people uh who hear the story because people that know me really well wouldn't wouldn't say like i'm like a sold out christian and i know it's terrible to say but like I, I have christian roots so like i would deep dive into prayer and worship and things like that and my anxiety or depression whatever would just get worse and i would go to church and i literally felt like my body was just being attacked and so I like in my mind, I was like, man, like, am I like demon possessed? Like I just had, I was just searching so hard for answers that I had no idea what was going on with me. Um, so, but I think to your point, I think the like constant drive and the, the ability to tell myself that I didn't want that um, is really what kept me going and what kept me, what brought me here today is just, knowing that those thoughts were not me i guess and they were they were just happening like even though i couldn't control them it still wasn't it never got to the point where it was like all right like let's just do this you know but it did get to the point where it was scary enough that like i had my wife take apart my gun and hide it hide the different pieces from me so it was it was definitely real but it never got to the point where um where I actually like tried to do it. But, but that's an important perspective because if you think about, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but I have when I was younger, drinking, ending up taking a girl home who at that night I told, oh, you know, I, I told how strongly my emotions to were 
And then we spend the night together the next morning. I'm like, fuck. And it may not be like full on sex, just even, you know, whatever it was. But I'm a very honorable person, normally very honest. And alcohol became a distorter of my reality. If I'd been stone cold sober in a cafe at lunchtime with this individual, it never would have ended up getting physical. So, you know, you lean in that way like so many people do pre-suicide. And now you've been distorted enough where those demons become a reality and you, you know, you complete suicide. Conversely, even though you feel like your prayer, your meditation, your walks, whatever it is, haven't solved the problem, understanding that maybe they're still giving you some strength on the other side to keep that realization that this isn't my mind, that this is an intrusive thought. I've never really kind of vocalized this before, but it's interesting. It's it's a it's a seesaw. And even though you don't feel like, oh, this is fixed, what's going on? It's still worth doing to keep as much of the strength on your side, which opposes those intrusive thoughts becoming your reality. Yeah, I think so. And I think it was also just like an outlet to um, just even if it was myself and I wasn't talking to anybody else, like get it out, you know, even though it probably would have been or it would have been way better if I spoke with someone else about it. I think it was as much as it still sucked. I think it was an outlet for me to like just get my thoughts out and just kind of I don't know, reflect on what was going on, um, even though it was extremely difficult. And I, it's funny, I even read a journal article or journal uh, article, journal submission that I wrote while I was in it. Uh, I read it a couple months ago. And the crazy thing is that even reading it today, I can tell that I was, I wasn't even, I wasn't even brave enough to journal what was really going on with me. Like you read my journal entry and I'm just like, dude, like, why were you sugarcoating yourself in a journal entry to yourself? You know, <laughs> like, it's just like, like, you could tell I was just tiptoeing around the real problems and really, like, it's almost like I was worried somebody was going to find my journal and read it. You know, it was that type of, of writing, like, oh, yeah, today was a rough day. It's like, bullshit, man. You're, you're like, scared you're going to slit your throat. Like, don't. Don't sugarcoat it, you know? So it's just, it was interesting looking at that. So you've got this, you know, this intrusive thought thing going on. You're trying all these different tools. You obviously, sadly, were kind of failed by the mental health individual that you met. And it was a lot of box checking at that point. Um, You know, walk me through again. You said at one point it became anxiety. So when did that shift? And then, you know, what what was that journey like for you? Yeah, so my whole um, Afghanistan deployment in the regular army, I was still very much like depressed and having these these uh, thoughts. Um, and then it really started to shift once I got back. Actually, it was towards the tail end of that deployment. Um, I remember one night we were walking to the to the chow hall. Like I think I was on night shift at that point, and I was just walking with my buddies, and I literally got so dizzy that I fell over. And I have no idea what happened or what like what like led up to that or why it started happening like that. Then since then, that's when the dizzy spells started. And um it didn't get to a point where I actually knew what the hell was going on until like probably a year and a half ago. So um 
So that whole deployment, the end of it, I was having these weird dozy spells and I just held it all in because, you know, that's what we do. <laughs> and um, I get back and I go assess for the 160th. And that whole assessment, I was, I was struggling. Like it was, it took everything I had just to survive the assessment. <laughs> I know it sounds extreme, but like, so I distinctly remember the, um, the end of assessment, you have to stand in front of this board of like higher ranking um, guys in the 160th. So like super respected individuals and you have to give them a brief um, basically on this thing that you have no idea what you're doing. You're just like trying to find the best solution for it. And obviously these guys in the room are experts. So they just say you sit there and pick you apart and they just go over your entire assessment and the entire week prior and basically just tell you how bad you failed <laughs> to your face. And you're just sitting there taking it. And I remember like, thank God I was at a, um, so you have to sit at attention like army style, but thank God I was like bidding because my mind was like, I can't even remember what the people were saying to me, except for, um, I remember this one CW5 distinctly said to me, he said, so like, I'll first, I want to phrase it this. So on paper, I was like the perfect candidate for the 160th, like former special forces guy, um, just got made pilot in command and got 500 hours within like a year in the regular army. So like, I was a superstar on paper, you know, physically fit. And then, um, so the CW5 asked me, he's like, Nick, so you're, oh, and then honor grad too in flight school. So I was like another, you know, check that block, check that block. He's, you know, A plus student. So yeah, that's CW5, really respected senior guy in the regiment, looks me in the eye. He said, Nick, what happens when you run out of steam? Like, you are such a high performer and you have a history of being such a high performer. Like, what happens? when your body reaches its limit and I'm just like, holy shit, man, like this guy can see through me, you know, this guy can read my mind, but obviously, you know, I'm, I'll just keep going, sir, you know, and like, you know, that won't happen to me. But in my head, I'm like, shit, like here, this is already happening to me. Like, you know, but um, it was just ironic to think about that. So anyways, after your assessment, so I get picked up from 160th, and then I go to my unit um, and these dizzy spells are still happening. And, but thankfully like the suicidal thoughts and depression side of it kind of started fading. I wouldn't say it was gone, but it started fading and it wasn't like incapacitating. It wasn't every day constantly like scared that something like that was going to happen, which to me was a huge win. Like I felt so much better just because of that, but I was still struggling with these weird unexplainable dizzy spells and um i did not think it was anxiety like in my mind there was no way i was like all right i got through that mental health crisis now i found myself again in the 160th found my identity a little bit and now i'm just having these weird physical dizzy sensations um so but still i didn't tell anybody about that i was still just holding it in trying to you know soldier on and keep going so then 2021, um, I ended up getting knee surgery because my, I, I just was having trouble running and, um, decided to get it checked out and get MRI. And I had like a, a defect in my knee. So I needed surgery where they went and made a plug and put it in my knee. So that put me, um, on a downslip 
So I couldn't fly for, I think, nine months. And then during that time, um, I kind of got to the point, well, really, my wife got to the point where she was like, you need to go, like, talk to somebody about this other stuff, too. And I was like, okay. So I did. So I talked to the doc, flight doc, since I was already on a downslip. Told him I was having these dizzy spells. Um, I didn't disclose any of my mental health history because that was a big no-no in special operations, and I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to jeopardize the future because at this point I'm still trying to get back in the cockpit and trying to fly. So um, tell them there's, I'm having dizzy spells. So they do the, they do the right thing. They send me to like the ENT, get my ears checked out, get everything checked out. Um, that all came back normal. They sent me to a neurologist neurologist um did all these like nerve testing and things like that i got brain cts and all that stuff mris on my neck um and nothing major came out of it there were like small um osteophytes and stuff but i think i think every pilot has those so that wasn't anything out of the norm um and then i went back to the flight surgeon and i was like hey well i have always kind of had trouble like been really tired during the day throughout the day the past couple of years. And so like, what do you think about getting me a sleep study? And they were a little apprehensive because same thing as a pilot, like there's a lot of limitations if you get a sleep study and you know, the wrong, wrong outcome comes out. Um, but I was, I needed a solution. So I kind of insisted on it and I went and did a sleep study. Excuse me. And this was in uh, Savannah. So I went to a civilian doctor first. And after the sleep study, they told me that I got diagnosed with narcolepsy and I met the criteria for narcolepsy. I was like, holy shit, like that's kind of serious, you know, especially as a pilot, like I've been <laughs> flying all the time and I can't even stay awake apparently. <laughs> I mean, like to me though, at the, in the moment, I was kind of relieved because these dizzy spells had to have a reason, right? And in my mind, it wasn't mental health because I had gone through mental health shit and that wasn't happening anymore. I wasn't suicidal as much. Like I would still have every once in a while when I lay down to go to bed, I'd have like, you know, a thought would come in or whatever, but I, I was able to let it go, you know, and, and just get through it. So it wasn't, it wasn't the revolving thought pattern like it was before. So in my mind, it wasn't mental health. I was, I was done with that and I had made it through that. Um, so narcolepsy was actually a relief because it answered the question to my dizziness in my mind, it was like, okay, if I'm having these like micro naps all the time, maybe my body's just going to sleep for a second and then waking up, you know, and it's interpreting that as like being busy. So that was my justification for it. Um, and I, I felt good about it. Ironically, like, even though this was like a for sure career ender as a pilot, I was still relieved to finally have like a diagnosis and, you know, kind of an answer. Um, so after that, the um, army wanted to do a sleep study on me to confirm the diagnosis of the civilian doctor. And the army has like really strict rules on sleep studies. So I went to Fort Gordon, did a sleep study with them. And then um, the results came back like a month later and they say, I don't have narcolepsy and I don't meet any of the criteria for narcolepsy. <laughs> I was like, what the hell, man? So I'm already... I'm already permanently grounded. Actually, I didn't. I didn't say that. So after the first sleep study, they and I got diagnosed. They put me on a permanent downflip. So they basically said, 
you're not flying again because you have this. Um, so now my mind's like, well, shit, like what, what the hell am I going to do? You know, like now I'm in this weird purgatory land of having not being able to fly, but I'm diagnosed, but I'm not diagnosed with the thing that didn't allow me to fly. <laughs> so I, I was in this weird spot. Um, so I talked, went back to the flight surgeon. And at this point I actually had started talking to a psychologist. Um, and that started, I think like right before the first sleep study. So we started to talk about things and she was great, but she was also um, on of the opinion that it was something like biological and it wasn't mental health because of the like physical symptoms that I was experiencing. They, it was so extreme that they, they didn't think it was like just anxiety. Like they thought it was something underlying that was causing this. Um, so I go to, they tried to give me a third sleep study to actually get me confirm or reconfirm or whatever, debunk the diagnosis, whatever the result would have been. Um, and they wouldn't, the army wouldn't do it. Um, so I went to a sleep provider in Savannah and did a, um, oh man, what's it called? You had to tell me this before when they poke a needle in your back. Oh yeah. The spinal tap. Yeah. Spinal tap. It is spinal tap. I can, I can remember what they're testing. They're testing for hypocretin, but I can't remember spinal tap. <laughs> so they're testing for uh, hypocretin levels. And that, that is like a telltale sign of narcolepsy if your levels are elevated. So that comes back. I don't have any, I can't be diagnosed with narcolepsy basically. So back to the drawing board. Um, this is beginning of 2022. Um, and then finally, the psychologist um, has sent me to the psychiatrist and was like, all right, let's, um, I don't think it's anxiety, but let's explore getting you treated for anxiety and see if that helps. So um, I'm down for it because I'm already grounded. I'm already on a down flip, so I can't fly. So um, I'm just willing to try anything at this point. And they, so they started me on, I think, Lectopro, and um, I, it took a couple weeks, but I started to see a little bit of improvement with these digi felt. And I noticed that it became to the point where it was, um, it was a lot more like situational when they would happen. And I could, I could start to identify when it would happen. Um, which was a huge, like, huge, like shift for me, kind of like, that's when I started to realize like, okay, maybe it is like anxiety. Maybe it is something to do with this. Um, but I had to go through three medications to finally get to the point where it was like, okay, like now I'm kind of feeling good. And then in like summer or spring, late spring of 2022, the psychologist, once like my symptoms actually started getting better. And I was like, I told her, I was like, it's like, honestly, it's still happening, but it's night and day compared to what it was. And I find it was when I got on the sexer. Um, and then she read the symptoms of panic disorder to me in one of our uh, sessions and just went down the list. And I was like, holy shit, like you just described exactly like what's been going on with me. Like, how has it not been, you know, identified in the last year that we've been trying to figure this out, you know? But I mean, to her credit, like she, she didn't. He, he wanted to be very cautious diagnosing me or something like that because 
that felt to like a medical board potentially um, out of the army. So she didn't want to like, she wanted to cover everything else and make sure there wasn't something underlying um, before she went through that. So I appreciate that, but it was still, it was still a long journey to get there. Um, but yeah, long, so that's kind of how it ended. Um, she, so I stayed on Defector and I'm still on it now. Um, and now it's just like, it's there sometimes, but it's way, way better. It's like 95% better. And now um, I'll, I notice when it's going to happen. Like now it happens in like large crowds or like, you know, baseball stadiums, things like that. But it's situational and I, I know it going into it, which is a so much different perspective. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what brought me here today. I'm sure I missed like a lot of little details throughout it, but that's, that's the synopsis. So I've heard a lot of negativity when it comes to antidepressants and medication, but I think the the kind of middle ground is for some people, it's a kind of a, a gangplank between the crisis they're in and hopefully the the ultimate holistic decision. So for example, in, on the, the medical side, you know, you get someone who has blood pressure through the roof, you know, blood pressure pills are definitely something to bring them down so they don't stroke out. But my philosophy is okay that's fine as long as there's a, con a conversation about weight loss and um you know change the diet and exercise and an, and an exit strategy off that medication you're finding this is working for you which i think is very important what about on the holistic side is is there a, a conversation about not being in effects down the road and that's a great question because right now um it's still fairly fresh so i'm still like I'm, I wouldn't say I'm content with it, but compared to where I was when I was going through all that crap, um, I'm thankful amazing. for it. Yeah. Right. But, um, that being said, I have heard all the, um, holistic things that are prevalent now and I'm super intrigued and super interested, but I just got out in May. So I haven't like been able to deep dive into it. I've just been kind of like, okay, this is working. Let's roll with this for now. And then, yes, I, I am. I do want to seek alternative things so that I don't have to take this the rest of my life because yeah, we all know that the negative, the taking medications your whole life. Um, so yeah, the answer to the question. Yeah. I, I'm definitely interested in that stuff. I just haven't opened that door yet. Yeah. But it's, it's a, an important part of the conversation because there are people on the show where the medication was the thing, you know, and that's, so there's not a demonization of medication at all, but it's like, okay, that's the thing now, you know, where's, where's the end goal using this tool to navigate to the other side. My wife actually has gone through a similar thing herself recently and, um, she didn't have a good experience with medication, but she found herself in the ER basically testing just like you were. Okay. Well, eliminate is, it's not my heart. It's not this. It's not that. So at least then there's not the anxiety about I'm dying. I'm having a heart attack. I'm, you know, got an aneurysm in my body, all these things that anxiety just kind of amplifies these fears. Um, but she's leaned into breath work and meditation. And, and I, did we talk about New Calm before that app that I just came across? Yeah. Yeah. So and she's I been actually, doing that. Um, it's, it's awesome. I just finished the, well, I think today's my last day of the like week trial. And I mean, I don't know if it's placebo, but it's, it's pretty amazing. Like I've been sleeping with it every night. Great. Um, Beautiful. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Like it's it's funny when I tell my tell my colleagues about it. Um, 
I'm just like, you're not going to believe it because it just sounds like music, but <laughs> I promise you it worked. <laughs> you know, because when you put it on, you're like, oh, it's just like fleet music. But I don't know. They, it's it's incredible. So far, it's working for me. I think I'm going to keep doing it. One thing, because I'm trying to trying to figure out how can you describe it what are some things that people can re- can do and be like oh okay this is different than thing and every so often i'll get the full like like your body sinking into the bed and your limbs are really heavy and all that stuff but what i've realized i don't know if you've had this i'll try and think about things and my brain won't you can think but then it will just disappear like the brain won't carry on that thought process so there's definitely something there as you're down regulating because normally i have intrusive thoughts luckily they're not dark but they're the thousand fucking things that i need to think about and i'm stressing about and you know and it's the monkey mind it's the bingo machine but with that it's like oh i need to do that thing and then it's gone again you know so that's why real observation because i think placebo effect is strong when there's a kind of confirmation bias like oh this is gonna work but I think with this, it's people are like, eh, this kind of sounds like bullshit to me. So I think with CBD early on, it was the same. Like, you know, how can this work? And then they report sleeping better, et cetera, et cetera. So that was one big thing for me. Like when you're going through a session, try and run, let your thoughts run away and you'll be amazed. It's like there's someone held, held a pillow over the face kind of thing, you know, where, you know, not, you're not suffocating, but, but the, the thoughts just kind of, um just just kind of dissipate after a second or two it's it's bizarre to watch that is crazy and i actually haven't um like done the daytime stuff so i've only done the sleep except for i did i tried the ignite the other day um i was actually driving to a client meeting and i was like i'm gonna get pumped for this and i put it on and it was i'm not gonna lie it was too much like i was like all right (laughs) this is like i'm about to go like be a UFC fighter right now. Get a page. Like, I, don't, I don't need to do this going to a client meeting. So it definitely works. Um, and then my wife did um, one of the rescues the other day and she got at, like, I made her put headphones on and a mask and everything and just said, Hey, just do this for 30 minutes. Cause she was stressed out. And she came out and she was just like, I wonder if that's like what heaven would feel like. <laughs> I'm like, I think it worked. <laughs> I mean, I think it worked if that's what your thoughts went to. (laughs) Exactly. It was like, dang, man, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it's really cool. It's really cool to see stuff like that come out. Yeah, well, this is, like I said, this there's a lot of things that sound similar. And this is why, you know, we're trying to put this on its own pedestal and be like, you know, here's two hours to describe why it's different so you understand it. But why I think a huge value is, and even with your your community um alison brager was being on here and she's the army's kind of one of the neuroscientists and the sleep experts and she was saying i think it was brag like after you know the the cadre that was running i think the special forces selection you know obviously the candidates are up all night well so are the instructors for hours and hours and hours and they were having a lot of issues where the cadre were driving home and then you know rolling their cars off the side of the 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 freeway so whether it's a, a soldier or a police officer or a firefighter to just simply sit there and do power nap or you know one of the very short ones just to punctuate and reset so that only you're safe to drive home but also when you walk through the door you know in in selection you've been screaming at a candidate and and doing whatever you guys do and now you've got to be soft dad and do a tea party with your five-year-old you know to be able to punctuate that that in itself, I think is is an amazing tool for our community. 
Yeah, for sure. I think one of the hardest things to do is get people to actually devote the time to something like that. So if it actually like shows benefits and people see the benefits, then it becomes so much more valuable because even like with meditation for me, um, I got to the point where I was like, this has been working for me, you know, and it's not worth the 10 minutes that I need to spend doing it. But um, if something works, like it's so much easier to find that time to do it. And I think, I think there's a lot of value to that because that's usually the number one deterrent for people doing that is I can't spend, you know, 20, 30 minutes doing this. Like I got shit to do, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I gotta get home and see my kids. I can't, you know what I mean? So I think there's, yeah, it's cool to see something actually work. Yeah. Hopefully people will use it. Absolutely. Well, I mean, it's also the fact that it's passive, as you know, when you're meditating and you're meditating, there's an element of work. All right, I see my thoughts. I'm trying to let them go. I'm focusing on my breath. I'm trying not to think about how many minutes I got left, all that stuff. And I can't nap either. So I can't just lie there and take a 30-minute cap nap. Never have, despite being a firefighter. But it's passive. So you lie there. You may go into a kind of much deeper state. You may seem a little bit more surface level. But either way, it's working. And that's what's so crazy about it. And when you feel refreshed after, you start to go... That 30 minutes is worth, it's worth its weight in gold because now I'm so much more awake and focused and I'm actually a lot more efficient. So that was an investment of my time rather than, as you said, that was a waste of my time. Yeah, that's true. Have you tried the um, focus one yet? So I've been struggling to get back to writing my book and I put focus on the other day and banged out an entire chapter. So yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll just leave no, that right seriously. there. Yeah, so I have this like, revolving to-do list to do um on my work schedule and i have like 15 things on there right now or whatever and i i find myself constantly like jumping from one thing to another and i was like you know like i'm not really getting as much progress as i want done on like any one of these things so let's just let's try this focus thing (laughs) let's let's just try to hammer out one thing and yeah like you said like i was i was mind blown with like the ability to just get into it and it, you're right. It's so passive. Like it's not like you don't have to do anything intentionally. You just start working and put it on, and you, it, it worked for me at least. Well, and the <laughs> thing, pretty cool. the recover is is actually the gold for you as well, because that's to me that's the one that down regulates. That's the one that's going to help with the anxiety. So I'm I'm excited to hear you know when you explore with that. Yeah, hopefully, I know. I need to di- I need to devote more time to this stuff. It's so easy to get caught up in the you know rat race every day. And just, try to get everything done so fast um which is a recurring problem with me just trying to consistently push forward and not giving myself you know time to time to actually reflect and chill yeah well it's like that one guy said in in the interview you know i mean what does happen and this is all of us you know we we have to be such dynamos to get to these positions in these professions and then lives are at stake so then we're driven to be the highest you know best version of ourselves but at some point, you've got to realize that rest and recovery is a massive part of performance. Yeah, for sure. Like, you're going to get to the point where you're burnt out. And if you're not, like, you'll probably get there at some point. And hopefully, you have something like this in place that, you know, you can counter that with, you know, which I didn't. So, yeah, having tools like that is, is awesome. And the cool thing is, in the special operations world, you're seeing you're seeing a shift towards people realizing how important that stuff is. Um, that being said, though, there's still like 
a huge stigma with going to behavioral health. Um, and that's kind of one of the things that like, I want to get out there is like, yes, there's a stigma because there's so many unknowns to going to it. Like you could, your career could be over, right? Like you could be, if you're a pilot, you could be put on a downslip. If you're about to deploy, you can be made to stay home on the deployment because you have to, whatever, whatever the million reasons are that people don't go get help and don't do things to take care of themselves. Um, I just think it's, it's so much more important long-term for yourself to do that <laughs> and take care of yourself. Like, even though it's so hard in the moment because you, you have to be vulnerable, you know, and you have to actually like have humility and not even humility. You just have to almost be strong <laughs> like, and be like, screw it. I'm going to go do this and I'm going to take care of myself. I don't care what people think, but I mean, I was guilty of that too, of not, you know, of letting my pride get the best of me. And yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, it's, 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 it's a harder conversation if someone is younger and not married and doesn't have kids, but certainly, you know, when you have family, you know, you want to be there on all the shifts, all the fires, all the firefights, but ultimately, who are you really doing this for? You're doing it for your family to protect them at home in their community, in their country. And so if it becomes detrimental to the very people that you adore more than anything, that's when you go look in the mirror and go, is this about them or has this become more about me and my ego? Like I need to be seen in Afghanistan deployment after deployment or, you know, as you said, and a lot of people on here have said recently, you know, I transitioned out because I realized I wanted to be the dad that was there. My dad wasn't there, you know, whatever the story was. But, you know, there is a balance and it's the kind of, I know it's overused, but it's the air, aircraft um, analogy. You know, you have to take your own mask for, first before you can help others. And if you burn yourself into the ground, there's going to be a wake of destruction and you're going to be useless to, to everyone then. Yeah. And that's another kind of, you, you nailed it because even when I was going through that crap, um, like, I don't even know what kind of a dad I was, to be honest. Like, I'm a compassionate person just by nature. So I think, I mean, I think I like fake the funk pretty well, but I wasn't present, you know, like that was three, four years of my life that I was just getting by and just floating through life and um, still somehow performing work-wise. But my, you know, my home life was not as good as it could have been. Um, even my relationship with my wife was, just because I wasn't being honest with anybody, even myself, like I was just holding all this in that, you know, I, um, yeah, I just, I could have been such a better husband and dad during that time if I would have just talked to somebody before then instead of holding it in for literally years and, you know, just floating through life. So, well, this was what made this conversation so important, though, is that you're sharing your story. So, hopefully, people that are kind of at the beginning of that will will be able to have the self-realization and, and kind of question that old school mentality of, you know, suck it up, rub some dirt in it and actually look in the mirror and go, okay, you know, who's most important to me? Am I the best version of myself or them? Can I find a happy medium between still doing the job that I love, but also taking care of my own health and therefore my family's? Yeah, exactly. And I don't want to make it seem so like extreme as like, if you go get help, you're going to like, be kicked out of the army, you know, 
because that's not always the case. That's actually the majority of the time. It's not the case. It's just a matter of, hey, you need some support for a couple months, you know, and then you'll be back at it. For me, it was just, it just dug so deep because I held it in for so long that it got to the point where it was like, like, I just need out of the army. I need something to change, you know? And I was just so ready to just move on and do something else that um, that's what happened to me. But yeah, if it's, if it's like early on, you know, and you go get help, then literally I probably would have been fine in like two months, you know, or whatever it would have been. I don't even know, but I think the end result would have been a lot different if I hadn't have held it in for so long and just let it fester and let it get worse and worse and worse and just snowball. Well, I want to throw a few closing questions at you, but before we do, I know that you are writing a book at the moment. So is there, is there any kind of teaser you want to give the people listening right now? Yeah. So I'm writing a book called Stigma. Um, I don't even have a, a good subtitle for it yet, but the whole premise of it. So I'm going to go through my story in depth um, and explain just kind of what I went through. Even I'm even going to get into like the thoughts that I had. And so it's going to be pretty intense. Um, but the overall theme of the book is it's, it's a success story. Like it's not, it's not meant to be grim and it's not meant to be doom and gloom. It's, it's meant to expose the stigma that surround mental health in the military and specifically special operations and kind of go through all the reasons why people don't get help. And it's more of a culture, um, bring awareness to the culture that's so people are so scared to go get help. So I want to just, I want to be a voice for those people that are going through something right now. And I, they can relate to this hundred percent. I guarantee it. And just let them know that like your life is going to be way better off if you go get help. Um, and the alternative is not what you want. <laughs> the alternative of not getting help is not what you want. Like getting help is is the answer was the answer for me um might not be the answer for everybody but at least talking to somebody about it and even like this conversation right now this is the first time i've been i've actually like publicly talked about this like the only people that know are my wife my brother and my parents um and a couple close friends now know um but yeah just talking to somebody like i talked to my when i first told my brother about it it was about a year ago and um he just started bawling and he was just, he was almost pissed at me that um, I didn't tell him, you know? And he was just, I think it just flattened his mind, like, holy shit, my brother could be dead right now, you know? And like, I would have never known, like that kind of thing. So that's what I want to bring awareness to is just the, the, all, all the reasons that people don't get help and all the reasons that people tell themselves why they're not going to get help and why they're just going to grunt through it and show them the benefits to to actually getting help so so yeah that's that's what i'm going to um that's what i'm working on right now i'm excited hopefully hopefully i can get that message across and another big goal through it is to not like talk badly about the military and special operations or anything like that because that's not the intent at all like they do great things for the world um my intent is really to that to the individuals that are going through something to hopefully help them Brilliant. Yeah, it's the same with the fire service. I mean, you know, we have some amazing men and women in uniform. And I don't think that most people in leadership positions wake up wanting 
to contribute to their early demise. It's just, you know, pulling back the curtain and showing like, hey, we can improve on, on all these different levels and make an environment that, you know, creates a, a more physically and mentally resilient, you know, military, first responders, etc. So, you know, it's not, again, demonizing, but if also if we don't pull these problems out of the shadows, people keep, you know, we keep losing people. So there's definitely that middle ground. For sure. And um, yeah, that's, that's really the mission of this book. And the mission that I'm kind of on right now is just to bring awareness to that and hopefully through that help people. Because um, the, the big thing too is like the focus right now, as you know, very well is on PTSD and veterans, right? Like the most people don't really talk about what happens if you're going through it while you're on active duty, you know? And that's because people don't talk about it when they're on active duty because of what I just said, because of the fear um, and all the stigma associated with it. Um, like here's a, so day one in basic training, when you show up, there's literally kids that are already pulled from training and the drill sergeants take their shoelaces away because they're suicidal. Like, and all of us little hyena privates, you know, that are still in training are laughing at those kids. And that's where the stigma is born from, you know, and it just carries with you. And everybody just has that. Like you go to behavioral health, you're weak and you, there's something wrong with you and you're weak. And that's, kind of the attitude, which is horrible and needs to change because it's you're actually strong if you go to behavioral health. Like you're actually like saying, like, fuck the system, I need help and I'm taking care of myself when you go there. And it's so liberating to finally get to that point and like finally be able to talk about it. Even for me, like this is the first time I've spoken publicly about this, you know, like People are going to listen to this and be like, oh, my God, dude, I didn't even know you were going through any of that. You know, so it's just it's crazy, it, but it needs to change. It's not it's not OK. Well, another topic that's come up, especially more recently, and, and you'll kind of touch on this with the book as well, is just that post-traumatic growth. And I don't think that's in the messaging. If you take a trauma and I've heard some freaking horrific things that have happened to people, whether before they put the uniform on, when they put the uniform on. But you find whatever your unique individual toolbox looks like to navigate that trauma and you come out the other side, that becomes a superpower for a lot of people. You know, you are more empathetic. You, you have um, commonalities with people that are struggling. You can tell your story and say, look, you know, this is what worked for me. You know, it may not work for you, but there's hope because look, you know, I'm, I'm here now and I'm, I'm a better soldier. I'm a better firefighter for it. So I think that's the other conversation. It's not stop the stigma and you know find the thing that helps you deal with your mental health it's like fuck that push through you know high performance is from a, a, a clear mind so whether you're struggling immensely or whether you're just starting to get foggy because you've got some shit you haven't dealt with the other side is is hope there's there's, there's some amazing things so rather than just you know talking about dealing with it overcoming some of these very kind of meh terms we need to focus on this can this can be an amazing strength. And I was just talking to a guy just a few hours ago. Um, there's that Japanese uh, term, I forget what it is, but you know, when, when there's a broken pot and they mend it with the gold so that you're proud of your trauma, you're proud of your scars. That philosophy needs to be in our mental health conversations as well. 
Yeah, exactly. And I'm I'm actually like just starting to feel that, you know, because I'm just now like talking to people about it. And with that too, like you're well aware, but you'd be shocked how many people I've spoken to who I've actually told about this stuff. And they're like, dude, I've dealt with that too. You know, like people in the military. And you're just like, what? Like how like how are there so many people that have dealt with it and just held it in? Like Thank God so many people are making it through, but, you know, for every 10 that do, there's one that doesn't, you know, so it's just, and I was just, I've been shocked with how many people that have actually like related to me because when I was first going to like start talking about this and um, just kind of lay it all out there, I was terrified. Like I was like, everybody, all the freaking, you know, opinions that were in my head before was everybody's just going to, you know, call me a pussy and you know <laughs> say that you know whatever he's weak and he's he's going he's there's something wrong with him you know but the more i've spoken to people about it and the more i've opened up about it the more i've just realized like isn't that abnormal like people just hide it really well and people don't want to talk about it so but it feels so good to talk about like it's so liberating it's it's so nice well, that's yeah. so good to hear. So good to hear. Well, so you've got your book, um, Stigma, coming out. And, and obviously, once you have that ready, I'll share it on all the, the platforms that I have as well. The first of the closing questions, is there a book or are there books written by other people that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. So I am the worst reader in the world. I listen to audiobooks when I can. <laughs> But not often, honestly, like I'm not a big book reader. And um, so on my daytime job as a financial advisor, so all the books I read are like personal finance related. Um, so long story short, um, no, I'm more of a podcast guy than books guy. <laughs> I'm not, I honestly can't even tell you the last five books I read. Like they've been studying for financial exams and <laughs> things like that so no i haven't consumed much much many books no problem and what about movies and documentaries any of those oh man yeah so there's a new documentary trying i'm blanking on the name but it's it's literally they run a mile race i don't know if you've heard of this chad chad wright is featured in it i literally my guest yesterday spoke about this exact uh you know the the documentary have have you watched it yet i haven't yet but let me see if i can find the title yeah you gotta watch it so essentially there it starts with a large field and the premise of it is they have to run a mile um they have 20 minutes to run a mile and the race there's no end to the race it's literally last man standing so they they have to run a mile every 20 minutes and i don't remember the fine. I'm not going to spoil it because it's, but it's just amazing. The uh, guy that wins is like just a freak of nature. And <laughs> throughout the whole documentary, you're like, this guy's just, this guy's insane. But it's, it's such a cool documentary to watch. It really shows like the, like, extent the human spirit can go. Um, yeah. Did you find it? No, I didn't. I don't know if he can remember yeah. the title either. I think that's what happened. But I think Navy SEAL Chad Wright was the one that won it. That's, yep. Yep, that's right. Yeah, yeah you got to watch that. It was incredible. That and then the um, 
the solo one about that free climber. Free solo, yeah. Free solo. I don't know why those just people like pushing the limits of what a human can do or should do is just so interesting to me. Like I would never do that shit, but <laughs> but watching it, I'm just like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing what a human being can do. There's two other ones in that vein, one called The Alpinist, which is about an ice climber. And then there's a recent one. I think I've got this right. The Deepest Breath, I think it's what's called. And it's about these these free divers. Both of those, they're not just documentaries. You're taken through this, again, visceral, nervous journey where just like free solo, you're on the end of your seat the whole time. But I recommend those two as well. Yeah. Okay, cool. What was the second one? Um. So yeah, uh, sorry. Um, the Alpinist, and I think it's the Deepest yep. Breath. Okay, yeah, I'll check those out. Yeah, it's just funny it, when I watched it. Uh, well, kind of watched it with my wife. She was closing her eyes half the time, but <laughs> I told her I'd seen it before, and I'm like, just wait till the ending. Like you're gonna be so mad. <laughs> so like the whole time she's thinking like, like he died, like he catastrophically falls off the cliff, and then yeah, it's just fun, fun to mess with her like that. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of amazing people, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Hmm. That is a good question. And I don't have anyone that's like not on active duty right now that um, would be would be a good candidate because most of my friends are still on active duty um, and they probably wouldn't want to speak publicly yet, but um, I can make, I can make some connections and reach out to some people and potentially. Yeah, absolutely. I have a couple in mind. Yeah. I have a couple in mind that that might. Beautiful. Beautiful. That works for me. All right. Well then the very last question before we make sure people know where to find you online, what do you do to decompress? Um, So, I finally got back into um, a little bit of running. Like my knees are good enough to run, but uh, my wife and I just got into CrossFit. So I've always kind of done um, like CrossFit style workouts. But now that I'm out of the army, we were like, well, we don't have a military army free gym membership anymore. So let's join a gym and uh, try to plan a fitness for like three weeks. And we were like, now nah, this isn't doing it. So we joined the local craft, the gym and yeah, I just love it. I love the like competitiveness and the sense of community. Um, so that's, that's my real outlet. Like that's where I can really just go lay it all out and crush it and just get it done still. Now, usually when people have rab though, there tends to be an element <laughs> of dehydration. When you look back now, what were the mistakes that you made? That's funny. That's funny that you asked that. So, um, I'm sure you're familiar with CrossFit, but there's a lot of like super technical movements in CrossFit and like things that you don't do every day. So my whole career, I've done CrossFit style workouts. But that being said, if there was something that like I didn't want to do or I wasn't good at, I would substitute it. (laughs) So, So now that I'm going to the CrossFit gym, I can't substitute because, you know, that's not in my nature. So, um, it was a workout with, it was a bunch of pull-ups and then progressing to chest to bar pull-ups and then progressing to muscle-ups. So um, I had not been doing any of those frequently. And I 
thought I did really well on the workout. I did do really well. I pushed myself to the limit clearly. And um, yeah, that was it. So it was really just me. I don't, I don't think I was dehydrated. Like I'm not, I'm always really hydrated, but it was also like a hundred degrees that day. And the CrossFit gym is like the typical warehouse one with the doors open. So I think that was, it was just, I thought I was 21 Phil and I, you know, worked out like I was 21 <laughs> and I realized I'm 34 and not quite the, not quite the 21 year old I used to be. One of my friends who was an older athlete, one of my fellow coaches too, it was a similar one. It's funny, before you even said anything, I was like, I bet there's pull-ups in it. He had, uh, and again, not not super extreme, but pretty, you know, moderate rab though. And again, his arms were just on fire and swollen. Is that what you had as well? Yeah, I couldn't straighten my arms for like three days. I was just stuck in the hospital at like 90 degree angles. And um, I was in the hospital for six days. Like my levels were, I think it was almost a hot, uh man, I'm trying to think. It's almost a hundred thousand. I forget the even whatever what they measure, but yeah, the regular was like three to five hundred, and I was at like a hundred thousand. <laughs> and even when I got released from the hospital, my levels were still at like eight thousand. So I was still technically in rapto, but it had progressed to the point, and there was no like kidney damage or anything that they they were like, all right, we'll check you in a week and just stay hydrated. <laughs> but yeah, learn my lesson the hard way. But it's so funny you go through all these like crazy training pipelines and everything and you know you think you're invincible and then something like that happens and you're just like what the hell like i've always worked out like that you know so but yeah it's kind of funny to look at it that way i've definitely as i've got older gone away from the and it's not you know it's not being naive it's just not really taking a step back and thinking but i used to be able to do this so I can still do this, you know, and you have a break and you go back in and hit it hard. Now I'm like, I am more than happy to do a, you know, a slow on ramp again, you know, we'll start 60% of what I used to do. How does that feel? Okay. You know, and just titrate to effect. But yeah, there's, there's CrossFit is amazing, but you, if you're not careful, you get swept away and you get a little competitive and I used to be able to beat that fucking guy. I'm going to put the same weight on, but he hasn't missed (laughs) the last month, two months, whatever, or she, I got my ass kicked by many women. Um, and, you know, and then you end up not being able to train for weeks, which sets you back versus just kind of swallowing your pride a little bit going, all right, I haven't done this many whatever. Let me do this for, let me do strict instead of kipping. You know, let me just work on that and then build that strength up and then go. But it's, it's you know, it, it's a new arena if you haven't done CrossFit specifically. And it takes a while as an athlete to have the kind of toolbox to go, this is not a good day for me today. I'm going to take it down a bit and that's okay. Exactly. And yeah, I think it took something like that to make me realize that <laughs> because I've never had to like, you know, hold myself back physically. Like I've always just been able to push it to the limit. And yeah, I think it was a good awakening, good like wake up call. <laughs> All right, man, you're not, you're not a green beret anymore. Like let's, <laughs> let's take care of yourself. You don't have to be running, you know, 12 minute, two miles anymore. You can, you're just a normal person. You can actually like just try to be healthy. <laughs> you know, this is a different, yeah, it's funny mentality. And it's still hard for me to turn it off, to be honest. Yeah. Well, then there's the, you know, there's the performance and there's the wellness and there is a happy medium. But like you said, when you're in selection, you don't have a choice. You have to do all the pull-ups and carry all the logs and, you know, do whatever you're asked to do. And the same in the fire academy. You can't take your bunker gear off and go, I'm hot. <laughs> you know, you, you have to yeah. get through it and whatever they put you through, they put you through. But 
as you go through your career, you become more efficient with your strength, endurance, etc. You know, you can still maintain a high level of performance without brutalizing yourself three or four times a week. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of amazing to think about those like older, you know, because I was what 21 when I went through the Q course, top of my game, you know. It's crazy to think that there were like 35 year old men that were going through with me that like their bodies had already seen, you know, 15 more years of beat down and they still succeeded. It's just wild. I couldn't imagine trying to do that right now. I, I might be able to grunt through it, but it would not be pretty. That's for sure. <laughs> All right. Well, then for people listening so that they can, you know, stay updated with the book and, and maybe they want to reach out to you after this conversation, where are the best places to find you online or social media? Yeah, and then at Instagram, I am at Task Force Stigma. And I will be starting to post content on there, just little uh, teasers of the book and starting to uh, kind of document my journey through that as well. Um, and then I also um, am going to start documenting kind of my progression to, like you said earlier, like get get towards the point where I can get off these meds and start finding holistic approaches and just see what works. So yeah, feel free to follow me and follow me through that journey. One thing I didn't ask you, Kagan found huge benefits when it came to the psychedelics. How did you guys come come across each other? Yeah, so I actually heard him on the Andy Stump podcast uh, on Cleared Hot. And this was, oh man, I don't even, I think it was over, yeah, it was about a year ago, maybe even more. Um, so this was even before my anxiety diagnosis. So this was when I was still technically fighting the narcolepsy diagnosis and trying to figure all that out. And I reached out to him because I was like, Hey man, I just heard your story. Like I am potentially getting medboarded out of the army and kind of like, I need help because I'm in this weird limbo situation. Like you have time to talk to me and he, he was more than happy to. And he, he was awesome. He gave me a ton of resources to reach out to. Um, and yeah, I was just so blown away by his story that I like, I felt like obligated to contact him almost. <laughs> I was like, I need to like talk to this guy and just be like, it, his story is amazing. It's just incredible. So but yeah, that's how, I, that's how I got connected with him was I reached out to him through that. Brilliant. This is the power of podcasts. That's what I love about it. You get I to know. hear someone's whole whole story and then hopefully connect with them as well. Well, Nick, I want to say thank you so much. It's been, you know, an amazing conversation. I mean, you've got a very unique perspective. And so I think a lot of value in being with some high performers and then finding yourself, you know, not around that close-knit tribe anymore. I think there's a lot of people listening, whatever their professions, that can probably relate to that. And I know that was one of my biggest struggles. But leading us through the depression, the anxiety, your perspective of, you know, the the intrusive thoughts and then what's worked for you up to this point, including pharmaceuticals. Um, it's a, a very, very important conversation. So I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time and coming on the show today. Yeah, thank you too, James. And thanks for giving me this platform to get my story out there. Hopefully, hopefully we can help people through this.